This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, good morning, Mill City. I hope you're doing well. If this is your uh, first time with us today, we want to welcome you here. Uh, We're happy that you could join us today for online worship. And if you have a Bible uh, with you today, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we'll be studying. And if you'd like to follow along with a listening guide and take notes, that's available for download in today's description of the live stream. Well, suffice it to say that this winter season has, very, has looked very different for my wife and I uh, than in past years. In some ways, we've actually become busier uh, because of just all the remote meetings and remote events happening. But in other ways, we've actually been able to get some time back uh, because of not having to commute to as many uh, events in our area. And with some of this extra time on our hands, the door has been open for us to actually uh, do something that we previously didn't have a lot of time for, and that's, that's watch Netflix, actually. We've watched, we've watched a lot more Netflix and Disney Plus and all the other pluses uh, relative to our pre-COVID norms. And as such, a friend recently recommended that we watch The Impossible. This was a 2012 Hollywood drama reenacting the real story of Maria and Enrique Ballone and their three small sons fighting to survive the deadliest natural disaster of the 21st century. That was the the December 26th tsunami earthquake of 2004, in which over 225,000 people died, and over a million people were displaced from their homes in Southeast Asia. And so my wife and I sat and, and watched this emotional roller coaster that we really, we really were not prepared for, because within the first 10 minutes of watching this little family enjoy a tropical holiday in Thailand, a wave the size of Lincoln Memorial, literally a 100-foot tsunami wave, blackens the sky, rushes in and swallows up the entire family in its rage, just tearing them apart. And the rest of the movie is spent following members of the family around Thailand as they desperately seek to reunite their clan, performing daily search and rescue missions in the hope to find each other. And the reality is that during this 2004 natural disaster, Thousands of people gave up their time and resources, and some even gave their lives to search and rescue others. People scavenged 20-foot-deep water-submerged hospitals and buildings and flooded forests and flooded streets even for strangers. Various reports came out that ordinary farmers band together to form search and rescue squads, searching for people they did not yet know and could not yet see in the hope to save some. And it got me thinking, this picture of strangers giving up their time, giving up their resources, their lives for other strangers is a powerful analogy to the Christian life because life and Christian faithfulness is not always a relaxing day on the beach where we're we're all living our best life now and, and we're not concerned for those around us because everyone else is also basking in tropical paradise. We know all too well that isn't the reality this morning. The reality is that life and the role of Christians in this world is a lot more like a search and rescue mission in the wake of a tsunami. We Christians have been saved from the waters of our spiritual, natural disaster, 
And now, instead of heading back towards land, we take our boats and we uh, head onto the water. We tread through an ocean of people below, sacrificing our uh, time, our resources, our lives, in the hope to find someone who is ready to be rescued with the gospel. So this morning, we're going to study how God empowers us to embrace this reality. I'm not going to pretend this is easy, but by God's grace and by the scriptures this morning, you will see it is possible, and it's possible to even do it with joy. And so let's see what the scriptures would teach us about giving our lives to present this life-saving gospel to others. So looking at 1 Corinthians 9 now, we'll, we'll be actually picking up uh, as the Apostle Paul has been pleading with a group of early Christians to reconsider the way that they uh, choose to think and behave around others. And he's pleading with them because the first century church in Corinth, around 50 AD, had several touchy issues to address. And one of the most specific ones was whether it was right or whether it was wrong for Christians to eat meat from an animal that had been used as a sacrifice to a pagan god uh, and then sold in a marketplace. And so there were several Christians that couldn't imagine touching, couldn't imagine eating that meat because they knew it facilitated pagan worship, or that's what it had been used for. And they, they weren't sure if God's grace allowed them to eat that. And so they felt very condemned for eating it. So you had some Christians saying it would be wrong and defiling to eat, to eat that meat. And then other Christians had the knowledge to know that pagan gods are not gods at all. And therefore, any meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god wouldn't have an effect on the meat. It wouldn't have an effect on the believer. And uh, it wasn't going to be a problem. You're free to eat that meat. In fact, the Apostle Paul actually agreed that it was not going to be a problem on its own. Jesus affirmed this as well, that uh, biblically the Christian can eat meat from wherever. But what Paul did have a problem with were those who were like him, who had the knowledge that they could eat meat in freedom, but then chose to flaunt that knowledge around other Christians who had not yet come around to this idea that it was okay. And the insensitive flaunting of this knowledge was causing other uh, formerly Jewish, formerly pagan Christians to stumble, and their consciences were destroyed over it. And so Paul responds, if, basically says, if you knowingly partake in an activity in front of your brother or sister that would cause them to stumble, then you're sinning. And he says, you're not just sinning against them, you're sinning, you're sinning against Christ. And the challenge Paul leaves us at the end of uh, chapter 8 is, in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. And that was his conclusion, that if there's something we're doing that we have the freedom to do, but it causes others in the faith to stumble or be offended, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to willingly lay aside my rights for their sake. And this context, this is actually really critical for us this morning. I want you to hear this. Just because you, or even just because I, understand this truth doesn't mean we're ready to apply it. I've met many Christians, mature Christians, that have agreed with this out loud. You know, yeah, you know, if, I, if I'm doing something and, and it's hurting them, you know, I'll just stop. I'll just stop, that's fine. But then push comes to shove and they're like, wait, forget that, man. Like, this is my right. I have a right. And then we say, well, yeah, but it's, it's causing all these people to stumble and be confused. 
And then we might hear the, the, a not-so-uncommon response back, well, that's their problem. Rather, rather than what Paul is saying here, listen, if eating meat, which is my right, causes my brother to have a problem, I won't do it, at, at least not around him. If it's in the privacy of my own home, then who cares if it's a matter of freedom? Now, we're not talking about anything biblically immoral or contradictory. We're talking about the gray areas that Christians have the right to decide for themselves. So with that in mind, we pick up in our listening guides. So two radical realities based on the Bible for the Christian to embrace. Uh, Number one, here we go. You have the choice to surrender your rights as a gift to others. You have the choice to surrender your rights as a gift to others. Paul drives this home several times in 1 Corinthians, and we already talked about it in chapter 8. But in chapter 9, he reminds us that he is free to exercise his rights, especially as an apostle. But then, in verse 12, look at what he says. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul voluntarily forgoes certain rights that he knows would otherwise grieve or confuse those around him. And for those of us, maybe this hasn't set in as to why this might be a big deal, Corinth was actually a lot like the USA in this regard. These people loved their rights. And in fairness, you can't blame them, right? Rights are a wonderful thing, an incredible blessing to experience as citizens. And just like in the U.S., the Corinthian people would be surprised to know you gave up your rights. They even considered it insulting that you were being ignorant, that you were spitting on liberty, that you were uh, taking citizen and citizenship and your blessings for granted. I had conversations uh, with people during this last election cycle. And look, I don't want to make anyone tense here, but I was, I was emotionally demolished voting for either or any presidential candidate because I was concerned with how people may interpret my partisan vote, especially people I loved. And so I was considering, considering not voting at all for the sake of people that I walk with and disciple on both political aisles. And I got railed for even having that thought. I had close people tell me that if I did that, I was also giving up my right to speak, to weigh in my political perspective for the next four years. And look, I am not prescribing my uh, internal and mental rabbit trail that I went down several months ago. My point is that we place a high premium on our rights, and understandably so. They're amazing. And in the United States, it's shocking insulting to people. Many of us would even be angered to know or think that anyone would surrender an American right, even if it was willful. And so for Paul, it required something of overriding importance to surrender any kind of right in Corinth. And so in verse 12, he states that if openly exercising his right would block the progress of the gospel in someone's life, then that was enough reason to give it up. In fact, he doesn't stop there. If anyone misheard him, he restates how proud he is in Christ for this specific sacrifice in very extreme language in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. 
I'm not writing to secure them, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And so look, here's the thing that we need to address right now at this point in the study. You have the right to freely live in Christ. And it's because Christ paid your debts on the cross. He paid your debts with his very life. So you don't owe me something this morning. You don't owe Mill City Church something this morning. You don't owe God sacrifices this morning. Now, God is most definitely owed the credit for forgiveness of sins and new life in Jesus, and he gets all the glory for that. But your debt to him and uh, your debt to him for your sin and for your new life in Christ, that was paid in full at the cross. That's what we learned from Colossians 2.14, Romans 8.1, several other passages in scripture. Now, some people will try to say that God has done so much for us, we now owe him a life of obedience as if we're paying back a new debt we've built up through receiving God's grace and the gospel. Some people will even say, Jesus died for me. The least I can do is live for him. And while I don't believe that the full intention of this is wrong, I'm worried that this debt-based perspective robs Christians the full joy of their obedience to God. Trying to pay back God for his gift to us is both an impossible and joyless task. So your freedom in Christ is yours. And Romans 6 teaches us that it's yours to use to know and to serve God at your own pace, freely and voluntarily, such that your service is the result of a new God-given heart and not some sort of God-owed debt. It's your freedom to freely give from, and it's yours to freely give up. And through the giving, it becomes a gift to others. So looking back, looking back now at the text, now at verse 18, Paul makes this very connection for us. What then is my reward for giving up my rights? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. He's saying, I give up my certain rights, my freedom, not to cause a scene, not to stir trouble, but carefully and intentionally so that nothing that would stand in the way of others receiving the gospel free of charge would get in the way. Or in other words, that I may give it to them as a gift. Gifts are free of charge, right? And there is great application here for us in our lives. First of all, if your motivation for your service and sacrifice is paying off debt instead of giving a gift, then resentment and a sense of entitlement will be eagerly waiting for you on the other side, like people owe you something if you feel forced to participate in sacrifice. So please let me assure you this morning, I will not force you to do this. You're free in Christ to work this out with Christ. And it's good as well to remember, Christian, that you have the spirit of God inside of you, giving you the same power to embrace this freely. It was the same spirit that empowered Jesus to leave his heavenly throne and his heavenly rights to save you. The same spirit that led him to freely give his life as a ransom for many. And so as you also surrender your rights by the power of this same spirit, you get to share in the same reward, the joy of proclaiming the gospel free of charge. That is the joy of simply giving a gift.
Rights aren't all codified in a constitution. And so you don't need to go there first, especially if that's not what your circumstances call you to. Rights are also related to what you eat or what you drink in front of others. Whether or not you offer your services or time free of charge. Rights can be the decision to uh, pay the check at dinner and uh, for friends and tell them whether or not you know, they need to pay you back. Rights can be the decision to get married or to remain single. Maybe it's the decision to, to lend out your power drill or your truck or vehicle to someone for an extended period of time. These are your rights too. And by strategically giving some of them up, you will find opportunities to present the gospel. And we'll circle back here, but, but ponder this morning how your choice to surrender some of these rights will soften others to the good news of Jesus. So, you have the choice to surrender your rights as a gift to others. Secondly, you have the opportunity to save others as carriers of the gospel. The opportunity to save others as carriers of the gospel. Now, if you are troubled with this wording right now, hang in there. Uh, in context, it's perfectly practical and theological, and Paul uses this wording. And the idea is if you came across a helpless drowning person in tsunami waters, the gospel would be the life buoy you carry in your boat that can be used to save the drowning person. It is salvation from death and sin through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so here, Paul, Paul describes opportunities he's used to spread that salvation to others. In other words, to share the gospel with them through his social circumstances. And in verse 19, he says this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law of Moses. Though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul explains here that he lives with a certain flexibility in order to relate to people as he tells them about Jesus. And he he even takes on new customs and, and participates in others' traditions. And this is also done in freedom. He says he's, quote, free from all. But with that freedom, instead of chasing self-fulfillment or something else, he voluntarily accepts some constraints as a servant of free choice. You see, a servant takes on parts of their master's culture in order to serve the master well. They begin to eat the types of food that the master eats. They learn the language that the, last, that the master speaks. They respect the customs in the master's home. And Paul, just like Jesus says in Mark 9, 35, says that he becomes a servant of all, not because he's forced to, but because walking alongside people where they're at is an effective means in finding inroads to love them and to share the gospel. And this is one obvious way that Jesus also chose to love people. 
Theologian Gordon Fee describes it like this. Paul clearly establishes he is free from any merely human restraints on his ministry, though freedom is not Paul's goal. The salvation of others is. Consequently, Paul freely puts himself at the disposal of all for the sake of the gospel, free in order to become a slave to all. This is surely the ultimate expression of truly Christian behavior because it is truly Christ-like. So when Paul's with Jews, though he's not subject to Jewish traditional customs anymore, he submits to those customs. He eats kosher and avoids pagan sacrifice meats if that's something that bothers them to create a bridge and an opportunity to minister to their hearts. In verse 21, Paul also alludes to being in social settings with non-Jews, right, outside the law of Moses. And with some of these people, they didn't care what meats anybody ate. And so in those cases, Paul ate with them. He lived like them, not unbiblically or illegally, but in ways to find common ground. Now, you wouldn't be alone to think that Paul's actions appear to be very inconsistent here. And on a social level, they are. But that's because on the integrity level, on the higher level, he knows the goal is the same, to share the gospel with everyone. So while Paul didn't compromise on the truth of the gospel or obedience to God, in all other matters, he was willing to adapt his behavior. So Paul was a flexible man in order to love others well. And this love culminates with purpose in verses 22 and 23. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. How beautiful is that? How amazing is that? And how would embracing this gospel-centered, servant-hearted mentality change the way you relate to others this year? It may mean that in some of your social situations, you could be more sensitive around those who are concerned for rules and and certain norms and, and traditions. On the other hand, it may mean that in other occasions, you might need to relax more and not make traditions and human systems ultimate to your practice of Christian faith. Ultimately, the goal is to share the gospel with others, and it's your decision to determine how and how much you actually do this in your life. Because in Jesus, you're free to determine that. But don't miss the chance to view your freedom as an opportunity to make progress for the gospel and not obstacles for it, okay? So as we close here, I'm excited to leave you with some real-life examples of all of this. And this actually comes in the form of a ministry update from one family who I'll refer to as the Johnsons this morning that we're actually committed to supporting here at Mill City through our financial giving. We support these people overseas. And so listen along to this and, and try to be thinking and try to identify ways that the Johnsons have surrendered rights and embraced opportunities to share the love of Jesus with others. So... Ten years ago, we sent Tim and Emma Johnson off to Asia to serve as missionaries among remote people groups in which out of hundreds of thousands of people, there are 100 Christians. 
Last month, I got to hear an update about the Johnson's housekeeper, Syra. In June 2019, Syra began to work for the Johnsons. While she is a woman of small physical stature coming in at a whopping four foot nine, she has a tough and tenacious personality to compensate, a headstrong and seemingly unshakable woman. Syra was only nine years old when her mother passed away and left her with four younger sisters for whom she became somewhat of a primary provider by the time she was just 12 years old. As an adult now, she was raising three more children of her own alongside her husband, yet without the help or support of any extended family, which is rare uh, in a country and an economy where extra help is difficult to live without. As Syrah worked with Emma to upkeep the Johnson residence, Emma Johnson was able to share things with Syrah, her interests, her values, her personality, and her faith in Jesus. Early on, Emma shared, that, uh, shared with Syrah that the Johnsons were Christian, Jesus-worshiping people. And Syrah replied with her own confidence that, well, she was a Shiva worshiper and would not be bothered with hearing about this Jesus. Yet regardless, the Johnsons held that this spiritual difference would not become an intentional barrier between them and Syrah as best as they could manage. And so Emma and Syrah continued to grow in trust and friendship through the ordinary means of cleaning and talking around the Johnson home. And as family matters naturally became a focal point of conversations, Emma learned that Syrah's husband, who is normally a calm, gentle man, was also an alcoholic who would beat her and the children while drunk. The police were called on many occasions, but either neglected to actually show up or issued meaningless verbal warnings to Syrah's husband even rebuking Syra, saying that beatings are the result of, quote, not performing her marital duties as a wife. Her husband's alcohol addiction also led him to mishandle and hoard the family's money, leaving them sometimes without enough food to eat. Syra's family struggles didn't end in her own home, but like most people, she had sticking points with other relatives. Her own sister, while normally sane and healthy, was also thought to possess or manifest some sort of demonic activity. Something as simple as a birthday celebration could turn into a frenzy of screaming and thrashing about, with Cyrus' sister banging her head on the cement floor and biting and scratching herself, impossible to fully restrain and utterly terrifying to deal with. As soon as the Johnsons caught wind of these widespread family struggles, they immediately sought to help Syrah in any way gifting her money and food and shelter when her husband became violent at home, and even seeking opportunities to confront her sister's demonic meltdowns in the hope to display the power of Jesus over the spiritual world. As the Johnsons gave of their time and care to Syrah, Syrah's gratitude for their sacrifices became increasingly evident. In a thoughtful word of encouragement one day, Tim Johnson said to her, I know you don't have a brother who can help you or protect you, I will be your brother from now on. Just call us, please, if you're in trouble. As Syrah heard such heartfelt words for the first time in her life, and after witnessing the Johnsons' unmerited love, protection, and kindness toward her and her children, Syrah showed the Johnsons a side of herself they never saw, they never thought they would see. Her eyes, strong eyes, began to well up. The mouth of her stoic face began to quiver. And in the distinguished presence of once estranged tears, she stared them in the eyes and she began to cry. 
And through her tears, she asked the obvious question, why? Why do you love me like this? This vulnerable moment was, was an answer to prayer that through sacrificial demonstrations of the Johnson's love, God would reach Cyrus' heart and show her the greatness of Jesus. And it was clear that unlike times in the past, Cyrus wanted to truly listen. So Emma kindly explained, the reason is God's great grace and love for us. And that because of that great grace and love he has extended toward us, we extend it towards others. Over the following weeks, several more conversations ensued in which Emma would share with Syra and Syra's interest in Jesus would grow. She wanted to read the Bible with Emma. She asked Emma about spiritual things and noted that Emma had a wisdom unknown to her. She would ask Emma to pray for her, saying, I know your God listens to you and answers you when you pray. Unfortunately still, family tragedy continued to buffer these positive encounters. Syra and her children endured more senseless beatings, demonic encounters, and eventually her husband abandoned the home and never returned, leaving Syra alone with her three children to fend for themselves. And in keeping with their word, the Johnsons continually stepped in to help. And Syra felt as if her only source of hope was found in them. And so one day, in a bout of panic over Emma's health, Syra vocalized her fears over ever losing Emma. And she turned to Emma and she said, Sister, you are my God. Troubled to hear those words, Emma asked Syra to repeat herself. And again, with tears filling her eyes, she said, like God, like your God is Jesus, you are my God. And so Emma, as she describes to us, hugged Syra, gently wiped her tears off her face, and then strongly rebuked her. If you make me your God, you will soon find out how wrong you were to do that. I am not God. There is one true God. And although he is with me and his spirit is in me, I am not God. Do not make me your idol. The grace I show you is God's grace to you because he desires that you know him. Please don't say that again. Syrah cried back, all my life I've had to care for myself. I have never had anyone love me or care for me like you have. I do not love my own mother as much as I love you. So if you were to die, I would just kill myself. Emma responded, I love you too, and I will help you as long as I'm here. But there is no promise that I will be. That is why you need Jesus. He will never leave you. He will always be with you and help you. Trust in him alone. The almighty God alone is God. I am only a servant and daughter of his. And so it was honest and loving encounters like these that continued to show Syrah the truth and the power of the gospel. As Emma consistently invested in Sarah, Syrah, Syrah's understanding of the gospel and of Jesus was carefully clarified. Emma explained the uniqueness of Jesus' gospel being the only way anyone could be saved from God's wrath towards our sin. And that is a lesson that is critical for someone who spent their whole life searching through man-made luck charms to rescue her from inevitable earthly pain. Until one fateful morning, Cyrus showed up at the Johnson doorstep, eager to speak with Emma. She entered the home and explained to Emma that the night before, a terrifying encounter with an idol in her home left Syrah almost helpless. But that night, because of a small exchange she had on the phone with Emma, Syrah remembered that Jesus could save her from her fears and her sin. 
Syrah marched up to her household, household idol, stared it in the face, and said, if you were truly my God and I were truly your daughter, you would not torture me like this. You would not make me fear you in this way. I know you are not God. There is one true God, and that is the God that sister, meaning Emma, worships. Jesus, I will follow you only. Sarah then said, after this, I prayed to God. I listened to a sermon on YouTube, and then I listened to some Christian songs. My heart had so much peace, sister. After this, I was finally able to sleep. Stunned, Emma asked specific gospel-centered questions and asked if Syrah believed all these truths about the gospel and decided and, and truly desired to follow Jesus. Yes, she did. Amazing. So Emma affirmed God's work in Syrah's heart, and the two prayed together, Syrah leading the moment with a beautiful prayer of gratitude to the Lord and confession to follow him alone, and finally ending with a prayer for his spirit to come. In joy, they cried together. And Syrah, grabbing Emma's hands and face, said, Sister, Thank you for telling me. I know God has been calling me a long time. He put in my life another Christian family a long time ago, but I didn't listen. But then he sent me you. I love you so much because I know God because of you. Emma told Syrah about Jesus' teachings, that following him comes at a cost and not with guarantees for health or wealth or a perfect life on earth. Emma explained that following Jesus included suffering for his name. Hearing this, Syrah took Emma's hands, looked her in the eyes, and said, Sister, I have suffered my whole life, but now I do it with peace. At the end of their letter, the Johnsons said they'd thought Syrah would need a flashy demon-casting miracle to demonstrate God's power, but in the end, God, through his word, through the proclamation of the gospel, through the Johnsons' voluntary servanthood, did the work in her to give her faith. His word and his spirit have power. All glory be to Christ. Brothers and sisters, this was an update from last month. And this is a voluntary embrace of the scriptures this morning. The Johnsons left American comforts and their right to American dreams and even just personal space to be a gift to the lives of hurting people in Asia. Part of the gift was an open ear. Part of the gift was charity. Part of it was true friendship, yes. But the ultimate gift they offered was the opportunity to hear about Jesus. If you are not a Christ follower this morning and you're hearing about knowing God or you're wondering about freedom from guilt and, and from debt, from sin, let me tell you, this, this Jesus, this gospel is the real deal. Today, you can have Cyrus same hope and freedom and joy of knowing God, even in the midst of great suffering. If you turn your eyes upon Jesus and trust in him to save you from your sin, he will do it. Don't suppress a response. It's a free gift today. In faith, you can embrace a right relationship with God and with man in love and in freedom. And for the Christian here this morning, you need to know because I talked, I talked to Tim Johnson. Implicit to this story is how the Johnsons adapted the way they dress, the way they eat, the language they speak, and so much more in order that Syrah and others would be saved. And we are all called to, to up and move to remote parts of the world to do this. But we can still extrapolate 
two questions this morning in order to help us process how to live out the spirit of the Johnson's testimony and 1 Corinthians 9 in our lives. So the first foundational question this morning for 2021, what will you give up as a gift to others? What will you give up? And before you or I tense up here, remember freedom. And it's okay to start really simple. Like it could be giving up some of the time you spend on the internet or giving up an evening of watching a news channel or playing video games so that you have some more time to meet with people in your life who need to be loved and who need to hear the gospel. You're free to feel it out. Just please take care not to let your freedom puff you up with knowledge that you flaunt around others. Instead, I urge you to use your freedom to make sacrifices as free gifts that you joyfully give to others. So maybe you can consider how available you make yourself to others or the rhetoric you choose to use in front of them or your use of social media or how you use your money. We're not to be paranoid about this or paralyzed at every decision. We just don't want to miss the opportunity to see our freedom as a way we can joyfully surrender our rights as a gift to others. What would you give up for that? Lastly, what will you take on as a bridge to others? What could you take on? Bridges, right? Bridges are ways that you can intersect with people outside of church. So from my own life, a few years ago, I played late night soccer every week behind a Chuck E. Cheese parking lot down the street with a bunch of strangers. And yes, it was strange thinking back on it, but I got to be with these men and speak with them about meaningful things. Another year, I had the opportunity to work in a new office space instead of working from home. And so I used that to be around others that I otherwise wouldn't cross paths with. I learned to make fresh bread in the office. I played lots of ping pong. And at night, I read the Bible in Bulgarian with, recently immigrated, with a recently immigrated young Bulgarian coworker. And I don't speak Slavic languages. I don't have an affinity for that. But we discussed life, depression, and the gospel over months. And last year, I decided I could use my Spanish to do language exchanges with Hispanic men all over the world. We've talked sports, economy, philosophy, and currently with one of them, I'm reading Christian literature in Spanish and teaching him about the gospel. For you, it's going to look different. And actually, I hope that it uh, looks different than meeting up behind a Chuck E. Cheese. But the goal here is to be creative. What can you take on this year as a bridge to other people? Consider your interests, your talents, your hobbies, your jobs, whatever it may be, that you may meet them where they're at and hopefully tell them why you sacrificially love and serve them the way you do. In the final analysis, we need God's help to do these things for the sake of the gospel. And with God's grace, just like Jesus, just like Paul, we can freely and joyfully make the sacrifice, take to the tsunami waters, and begin searching and rescuing with life buoys of the gospel in hand, even willing to search for people we do not yet know or cannot yet see in the hope to save some. I'm gonna invite the music team back on stage now, and we're actually, we're gonna have a couple minutes 
here to pray, to pray in your own heart. And we want to respond to the truths we learned today. And so this is an opportunity for that. I will offer a few different topics here and you can pray through them for a moment while we get ready to to end our morning. So let's pray. First, give thanks to God for freedom in Christ and ask him to show you how to use it in your life for the sake of others. You can pray for that right now. thing we can pray for is the pandemic. Pray that we would be responsible with social distancing and mindful to others' sensitivities. And pray that we'd be vigilant to continue reaching people with the gospel, even for now, if that can only be done virtually or online. Please pray for that. The last thing you can pray for is our country. Pray for peace in our country. Pray for the good and safety of this incoming administration. And pray that as we engage in our civic duties, (laughs) that our diverse politics as Christians would not destroy the gospel, but that our common faith in Christ would build it up. Pray for the country and pray for your witness this year as a citizen. Heavenly Father, we really need your grace. We need your grace to understand our freedom. We need it to enjoy our freedom in Christ and to use it as a gift to others. Would your spirit give us the desire and the power to surrender whatever rights are relevant to becoming all things to all people, to become servants of all people for the sake of the gospel. You are the one true God. In you, we have peace. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.